study of the Old Testament book of Exodus. Pharaoh has released the people of Israel following a series of devastating plagues from God against Egypt. Hundreds of thousands of Hebrew men, women, and children are encamped by the Red Sea when they realize that Pharaoh has changed his mind and is now bearing down on them with the full might of the Egyptian army. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. The people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and they said to Moses, Is because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians, so so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night, without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night, and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights with them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. Of all the hosts of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground to the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. So, so we don't assume that people that come to RUF are Christian people or that you really know what all the language and lingo means. Um, I know that can be kind of hard sometimes when you go to a church, whether you're a Christian person or not, because you feel like, I don't know what all these words mean that the people are saying. Like, I feel like it means one thing and they're acting like it means something else. Like, why is everyone talking about being encouraged all the time? No one else says that ever. Um, but one of those terms that Christian people often use to describe ourselves is to say that we are saved people, that I got saved when I was 15 at camp, um, you know, which is where a lot of saving happens. Um, 
But the, the term to be saved or to have experienced salvation um, is a very common term. It's a biblical term, and, but it also can be confused. So what does that term mean? What does it mean to be saved? Um, the reason I want to talk about that tonight is because what happens in this chapter of Exodus, the crossing of the Red Sea by the people of Egypt as they leave, by the people of Israel as they leave Egypt, is sort of the penultimate example and illustration in the Bible of what salvation looks like. Even when you go out from the Old Testament into the New Testament, and when Jesus is living and having his ministry, he even sees salvation like the Exodus. In John 5, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Then listen how he evokes it. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. The Exodus, this passing through, this crossing over, is what God means when he says that he's going to save his people. And so when people say that they're saved, what that means is that you're cross, you have crossed over from one place to another place. And so tonight, what I, what I want to do is Look at what does salvation mean? Like, what does it mean to be a saved person? And I'm basically stealing a lot of this from a guy named Tim Keller, who's smarter, yet more bald than I am. So um, the first thing salvation means, if you have a little outline on your sheet if you want to use it. Um, salvation means crossing over from death to life. Salvation means crossing over from death to life. Um, the Israelites are facing certain death. They had been in Egypt and they were enslaved there. And through this series of traumatic um, and dramatic uh, plagues, Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, lets them go. And um, so they're enjoying themselves. They're enjoying their newfound freedom. They have left Egypt. They're marching along with all their babies and old people and men and women and livestock and all this jewelry that for whatever reason the Egyptians had given to them. And they're, ta- they're, they're off and they're enjoying themselves in the new world and in their new freedom. And they stop by this sea, this huge lake. And to their horror, they find that Pharaoh has changed his mind. And he is not going to let them go. And he is chasing them down with the full force of the Egyptian army. Um, Pharaoh was a bad guy, which means he probably liked Hotel California, because that's a terrible, terrible song. And um, my, my wife will legitimately leave a restaurant if Hotel California is playing. She's like, I'm going to go. I'm just going to go outside. One time we were in Charlotte, and Hotel California was playing in this really fancy McDonald's on a player piano. And, like, we walked in, and she just turned around and, like, walked right up. Um, but Hotel California is a song about drug addiction, and there's this great line in there. You can check out any time you like, but you can never leave. And Pharaoh was intent that, yeah, I, I might have said I'm going to let you go, but I'm chasing you down. And they were facing certain death. Behind them was a huge body of water that they couldn't cross, and in front of them was um, the greatest military in the world. And when we talk about salvation, when we talk about what it means to be saved, salvation is from death. That you're saved from death. The Bible is clear that the penalty for sin, and by sin I mean us trying to find our own happiness and contentment outside of God, or us trying to control our circumstances in our life like God does and pushing God away, uh, the penalty for that is death. It's really the paycheck. It's all our work earns death. And we're helpless to stop it. Um, it's what's going to happen. There's no escape. And the Israelites were so sure that they were going to die. It's, it's really funny. Like, they were legitimately just in slavery. Like, the dude was, like, beating them, killing them, throwing their babies into a river. And 
they're so sure they're going to die that they start to convince themselves that it actually wasn't so bad in Egypt. You know, they're, tell, they're telling Moses, like, we told you we just wanted to stay and serve the Egyptians. Like, why did you bring us out here to die? And uh, I don't know, maybe you felt that way before. Um, you felt like, you know, I was living my life and then God came and got involved in my life and this feels more like death than what I was living in before. Um, but regardless, they're facing certain death. And the Bible is clear with us, so are we. Um, in our sin and where there is no way God makes a way for the Israelites Um, in the New Testament the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 2 which is one of my favorite portions of scripture he makes this point he says look we're all spiritually dead this is how we all are we're by nature children of wrath and we're unable to do anything think about how how can a dead person change their circumstances they can't But he says something amazing. But God, because he loves us in Jesus, has made us alive together with Christ. What God does when there's no way out of death, he literally makes a way of escape. He brings us from death to life by making us alive with Jesus. This is what's called regeneration. He brings us to life. Um, So I'm not sure if you thought it was like a really good idea to put defibrillators in the... um, in the airports now. But every time I go to the airport now, I'm like very struck by the fact that there are like legitimate high voltage, like death machines just available to anybody. You guys know what a defibrillator is? You know, the thing that like shocks people with their heart. And I'm not sure that like if I fell down and passed out in the airport that I want like, you know, Hank, who's just coming back from vacation to like hit me with a defibrillator. Um, I'd probably just rather just call it quits in the floor of the airport. Um, but the amazing thing about a defibrillator is if you did fall out and your heart stopped beating um, in the middle of, of the airport, that a defibrillator literally takes you in this one shock. It shocks you and it takes you immediately from death to life. And if you're laying there helpless, your heart has stopped. The thing that has literally given you life has stopped. Unless someone comes upon you from the outside and shocks you, you will not be alive. And that is a great picture of what God does in his grace is that when we're dead and unable to respond, unable to fix ourselves, he comes to us and he acts upon us by bringing us from death to life. And being saved means that God provides provides a way to cross over from death to life. And it's his work. It's him. He is the outside agent that comes to work in our hearts. It's not like, you know, the, the Israelites, they kind of like hold off the Egyptians for a while, you know, like swashbuckling on like the seashore or like they figure out a way to outsmart the Egyptians or they somehow manage to swim across this vast body of water. No, God comes and he legitimately rescues them by miraculous means. He brings them from death to life. Salvation is not a process of waking up or a process of getting your stuff together or a process of changing your behavior. Um, If you've seen Pulp Fiction, there's a great scene in that where Uma Thurman is dead from a drug overdose. Her heart has stopped beating. And John Travolta takes it. It's this really intense scene with this huge needle with adrenaline. And he puts it right into her heart. And she she comes immediately back to life. Um, When God comes and acts on you in salvation, you go from death to life. And you're gulping in new air in the living world. And that's why some of you guys have experienced this. Where you suddenly feel like, man, I was doing all these things and they seem normal and cool. And all of a sudden it feels like it's not okay to do that anymore. Um, That like my life has to change. Or one day you're like totally over Jesus and not interested or whatever. And the next day, like he's on your heart. 
He's in your mind. This thing seems like it's drawing you to it. He's, he's in a sense, woken you up from death. Um, some, maybe you've noticed that you're moved to love and forgive and show empathy to someone that you had every reason to hate before. God brings you from death to life. And that can only happen because Jesus can control death. He has beaten death. If you put your trust in Jesus, you know, if you think about the cross, and the, some of us you know, grew up in church our whole lives, and we're used to talking about Jesus going to the cross and dying and whatever that means when he comes back to life. If you think about what Jesus is doing on the cross dying as an innocent person. What that means is, if you trust Jesus, He's already died for you. He's already died your death. There's no death left for you to die. Like, sure, you will physically die, but it won't be the end. Charles Spurgeon says that Jesus made the tomb a bed and dying like waking up. That it's not something that holds sway over you. Um, Jesus, by dying, has died your death. And by coming to life, again, by being resurrected, has beat death. So if you think about Jesus' miracles, you know, there's this dude named Lazarus who's his friend. And Jesus, like, knows he's sick and knows he's going to die. And, like, intentionally waits in this other town and doesn't show up. He waits till Lazarus is dead for several days. And the text says there's an odor. The The stench of death is around. And Jesus raises him from the dead. Why does Jesus wait to raise him instead of just healing him? Because Jesus wants the world to know that he holds the keys to death. That he overcomes death and he can bring us from death to life. And it's, I love what, what Moses says to the, to the Israelites. He says, look, the Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. God brings you from death to life and it's a work of his grace to us. So salvation means crossing over from death to life. But salvation also means, per your handy dandy outline, Crossing over through uncertainty on solid ground. Salvation means crossing over through uncertainty on solid ground. Part of the reason why this was such a terrifying event for the Israelites is because they were horrified by, by water, by big bodies of water. Some of you guys are afraid of water. I'm horrified of the ocean. Um, because if you think about the ocean, you have no idea what's going on in there. Like, you're on the beach, like, this is nice, it's, like, kind of up to your knees. When I get into the, to the ocean far enough to be, like, off the, the bottom, I'm immediately, like, freaked out, I'm uncomfortable, I don't like this. Because I don't know what's going on around me. I don't know what's in there, I don't know what's going to happen, I can't control it. And for the ancient, most ancient people, they were horrified of the sea. This was, like, the embodiment of chaos, the embodiment of something that you can't control. Um, This is why it's so beautiful when God in Genesis talks about creating the world that he hovered over the face of the deep. That there was this chaotic thing and he brought order out of it. He called land out of it. He made sense out of it. It's like um, in the first Star Wars movie, which was, I guess, technically the fourth Star Wars movie. Um, I'm not talking about the pod pod racing Star Wars. I'm talking about the good one. Um, But, you know, Luke Skywalker and Han Solo and Princess Leia and Chewie, they're running from some stormtroopers, and they dive down into that garbage compactor. Remember that? And they're, like, waist deep in this, like, nasty water. Even though it doesn't look nasty because you can tell it's just a bunch of styrofoam floating in there. Anyway. Um, But what's scary about it is they don't know what's going on in there because there's legitimately a monster in there, and it takes Luke under. Um... They can't see what's going on. They're out of control. And that's how the Israelites felt about the sea, that it was chaotic and they were out of control. And then look, so look what God does in verse 21 in your handout. 
Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night, and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. God takes this thing that to them is the embodiment of chaos, and he asserts his complete control over it. He drives it back, so they walk through. There's literally a wall of water on both sides of them. They walk through. God makes a way through death, but also God makes a way through chaos. That he's in control of chaos. I was reading um, from the Psalms, and I came across this great line in Psalm 77. It says, When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. Um, It says that you walked through and you made dry land and your footprints weren't seen. That the deep was afraid of God because he is in control of it. He's in control of chaos. He's in control of the unknown. And you might not be afraid of the ocean. Okay, you might not be like a weirdo like me and you might enjoy the ocean. Um, one of the scariest moments of my life, by the way, was being on a scuba diving trip. And like, you couldn't see the, the land at all. And like, I took the mask and I got in the water and looked down. I was like, no. Like, he's like, you can only see so far and then it's just like dark. And there could be any, anyway. Um, <laughs> that's my issues. I'm in counseling. Um, <laughs> but you might not be afraid of the ocean, but you're every bit as afraid of the unknown as they were. You're every bit as terrified of what could happen and what might be out there. Um, And you're terrified of not being in control. Every single person in this room is horrified by the prospect that their future is not within their control. Um, It's that illusion of being in control is what takes you to class every day. It's what pushes you toward a career. It's what makes you decide what boyfriend or girlfriend to choose. But God is showing us here that the saved... If you're a saved person, if you've experienced salvation in Jesus, that you don't have to fear the unknown. Because God is Lord of the unknown, that he is literally in control of the unknown. He created the world by hovering over the face of the deep and drawing land out of it and making it make sense. And if you think some more about Jesus's miracles, um, some of you guys are in community groups. Community groups are a great way to get involved with RUF. Um, But on Tuesday or last night, you guys talked about this miracle where Jesus is in the boat with his disciples and they are legitimately freaking out because they're in the middle of the sea. They're Jewish people. okay? they're in the middle of the sea and like their literal worst nightmare is happening, which is they're in the middle of like deep, dark water and there's a storm and they're going to perish. They're going to fall into the ocean or into the sea and perish. And Jesus is sleeping. And they wake Jesus up and they say, don't you care, man? Like, this is literally the worst case scenario. And you're sleeping on a cushion. And Jesus wakes up and bleary-eyed says, peace, be still. To the waves and the storm and stops. It's still. Like, why, why do that? Or there's another time where they're out on this boat and Jesus is on the land and they can't get anywhere. And so Jesus just walks on out there. On the water. And like we're used to hearing this story, maybe if you've come up in a Christian environment, but why does Jesus choose to still a storm on the water and why does he choose to walk on water? Because he is making an unequivocal statement to us that he's in control of the things that we perceive to be chaotic, that they don't overcome him, that chaos doesn't over, uh, take control over him. Sin brings chaos, disorder, and destruction. You guys know that. Everybody in this room knows that sin brings chaos and disorder and destruction into our lives and the lives of the people we love. But Jesus brings order and goodness 
and new life. And God saves us from the penalty of sin, which is death, but also from the power of sin, which is destruction and chaos. And I just wanted to say while we're, while we're on this, we've talked about a lot of things this semester in Exodus that might be hard to believe at face value. And some of you guys are reading this and you're going like, okay, I get some of the stuff you're saying, but like, you can't really expect me to believe like dudes walk, like hundreds of thousands of people walk through a, a huge lake and God split it open and they walk through on the bottom. Or like some guy literally walked on water or somebody really brought someone back from the dead. And usually when I have those conversations, it's like, yeah, that couldn't have happened. I'm like, why not? Like, why, why do you not believe that that happened? It's like, and it usually kind of boils down to like, well, I've never seen something like that happen. Like, I've never seen someone come back from the dead, um, which would actually be interesting if you compared with people's expectations 200 years ago, because you've probably known a lot of people that came back from the dead. Um, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, you've never seen someone walk on water. You've never seen a, a, a body of water split in two and people walk through on it. So basically what you're saying is, I doubt the existence of something unless I can see it myself. You follow me? Like, unless I have seen this, I have reason to doubt that it didn't happen. And I understand that perspective, but it's not the way that any of us live our lives. Like, I never saw snow. I'm from middle Georgia. I never saw snow in person until I was an adult. Okay? Um, that's, just, that's just what it's like, you know, being me. Um, but I never struggled to believe that snow was a thing. Or that it existed. I had never like personally experienced it. But when I actually saw snow, I didn't go, ha, now I believe. I said, this only validates what I already believed to have actually be true, even though I'd never seen it. And the question isn't like whether these things have happened. The question is, if God exists, can he do things like this? And the answer is obviously yes. If God exists, he can do this as, as easy as doing anything else. Has God been disproven? No. Like, there's, there's no like, claim of science that, that God has been disproven. Science doesn't make that claim. Science doesn't investigate those kinds of things. So if God is real, why can't he do something like this? Why is this not, we just take this as face value as a historical event. Why do we believe in snow when we've never seen it, but we refuse to believe in this when we haven't seen it? And I... What I would posit to you in respect and just to challenge you to doubt your doubts is that the reason why I believed in snow was because by believing in snow, I didn't have to like change my life. Like believing in snow didn't make me like come under conviction and tell me how I had to live my life. But if we decide Jesus really rose from the dead or this thing really happened, God's able to do this. Like it means something to me. Like I have to change. I have to respond to it. I have to make a decision. So some of y'all want to tell me like, I won't believe in God till I see something amazing happening. And then I'm like, well, you know, there was this one time that God split the sea, and you're like, yeah, I just reject that out of hand. I'm like, there's nothing I can do for you. That's not a God problem. That's a you problem. Like you say, I need a miracle. I'm like, yeah, you got a miracle. You're like, yeah, well, that didn't happen. The problem is that you don't want to believe. There's something between you because you know it's going to mean something to you. And I say that in like full respect and confidence and glad you're here. Like, make a decision. Like, can God be God or not? Um, because, look, being saved, experiencing salvation, isn't about having all the answers or seeing the matrix. It isn't like overcoming chaos in your life. It's about walking on the solid ground of what Jesus has done and understanding this person who has saved me created everything and they can bring me through chaos 
and bring order to it. God makes a way from death to life. And God makes order out of the chaos and fear of life. But finally, and briefly, salvation means crossing over from slavery to celebration. It means crossing over from slavery to celebration. Um, If you were chasing somebody and you wanted to beat them up, some of you guys have been on that side of things. Some of you guys have been on the being chased to be beat up side of things. Hopefully not in college. You know, hopefully this is a thing of the past. Um, but let's say you were chasing somebody across campus to beat them up, and they, they are running toward Duck Pond, and Duck Pond just, like, splits into two, and they run through Duck Pond on, like, dry ground. Like, I don't know what you would do. I would probably not, like, go in there. I'd just probably stop and be like, you know what? This is not going to end well for me if I keep chasing this person. Um, but not Pharaoh. Pharaoh believes that, that he is God, and so he follows them in. And look at, look at in, in verse 26. Moses, or Pharaoh and the Egyptians follow them in, and the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. Like That word literally means he flicked them off. Not like flicked them off. Well, he kind of did flick them off. But um, they're like he flicked them off of his finger like a, like a booger. Like he, he legitimately flicked them off. Um, the waters returned um, uh, and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the, hor- the hosts of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. Um, God doesn't just liberate the Israelites from slavery. He doesn't just take them out of this land. He destroys the people that enslave them. God brings, like, brings justice for his people. He doesn't just remove the reality of slavery. He removes the possibility of returning to slavery ever again. Um, There was a march on campus with some students of color led by a dude named Victor Moore, who's a senior graphic design student who I respect a lot. And one of the chants of their march was no justice, no peace, no justice, no peace. And that really resonated with me because I was like, that's a Bible sentiment. That God's saying, if there's not justice, there's not going to be peace. Um, and, And God brings justice for his people. And this is vividly pictured if you read the book of Revelation, which is not a scary book. It's a very intense, image-filled book, but it's a very comforting book if you're a believer. Um, In in the book of Revelation, it says at the end of time, the serpent, the thing that, that, that opposed God, the thing that was fighting against God, the thing that was killing and enslaving God's people, God takes that serpent and he casts it into the lake of fire. Like he throws it into the sea, just like he did for these, uh, to these Egyptians. God destroys the oppressor. Um, Martin Luther puts this great in a hymn called A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And I don't usually read old hymns. You guys probably get like enough old hymn action when you come to RUF as it is. Um, I know that the music can be weird sometimes, but it's good for you. It's like, I don't know. I didn't really want to say that. Um, <laughs> I'm just too old and crotchety to pick new songs. Um, but listen to, what, listen to how Martin Luther puts it. He says, And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. This is, this is the point. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. The great hope of salvation is not that God will just take you away from sin 
and slavery and from the penalty of sin and the power of sin, that also God will take away the presence of sin. Um, God made it so that the Israelites not only uh, left Egypt, but that they couldn't return. Like, they couldn't go back to slavery. There was no slavery left for them. It was totally destroyed. And over the next couple weeks, uh, we're going to unpack what this means. Up to this point in Exodus, it's all about God bringing his people out. And from this point on, I hope you'll be here because this is all about how do you live as someone who God has saved? What does that mean to live that way? Um, but I just for now, um, I want to point out one thing because, look, I know some of y'all are so tired and you're beaten down. And you are sick of the shame of sin in your life. Um, And the good news for you tonight is that God is going to remove the presence of sin from the world. Um, Not only will you be set free from sin, you will never be able to return to sin. And one thing that means for us is that we get to celebrate if, you, if you're a saved person, if you trust Jesus, you get to celebrate. What happens right after this in Exodus 15 is they come up with a song. They literally like write a song. This is like very Lord of the Rings. Like something major happened. It's like, oh, we'll just write a song. The horse and the rider, he's thrown into the sea. But Moses' sister has a tambourine. She's dancing. They're singing this song. They're celebrating that God has done this amazing thing for them. And why are they so happy? Because not only can Pharaoh not get them, They can't get back to Pharaoh. He's gone. And living as a saved person looks like celebrating what God has done. That's what that is the key feature of your life if you are a Christian person. Is that you are celebrating what Jesus has done on your behalf to bring you out of slavery. It's observing what he's done and responding with if like I don't know, some of you guys I'm like what does it mean for you to be a Christian? And it's like the saddest, like most like intense, like I'm trying, I'm trying, I'm trying. And it's like what God has shown us here is like, it's a celebration. God has already done it. Just look and see um, this beautiful thing. Like Moses says, the Egyptians that you see today, you will never see again. And he wants you to throw a party. Um, when I was in college, this is the last thing. When I was in college, um, I played in an ACDC cover band, and um, we were really good. And um, being in that ACDC cover band was like a huge part of like my story of coming to Jesus, because all the rest of the dudes in the band were Christians, and I didn't know that. Um, but anyway, we were really good. We were called the Bolt, you know, because there's a Bolt in the name of ACDC. Anyway, uh, but we were super good, and. Um, <laughs> And uh, we played bars and stuff. It was great. But one of the cool things about being in a cover band is that it, they're not your songs. Like, you didn't write them. Like, you didn't come up with the material. You didn't record the songs. You didn't make them famous. Literally, all you're doing is playing somebody else's songs. And it is, like, the most fun thing in the world. Because you're just celebrating something that someone else has already done. And you're having a great time. And there's, like, no pressure on you to do it. And what Jesus is calling us to do What it really means to be a saved person is that you see, Jesus has done this wonderful, amazing, miraculous, mind-blowing thing for me, and I just get to celebrate it. Like, I just get to play that song back to him. So I don't know what, like, life is looking like. If you're, like, thinking about, I don't know whether I can do this Jesus thing, or you're like, I've been doing it for a long time, and I'm just bogged down, I'm discouraged, or I'm tired, or I'm hurting. Jesus wants you to celebrate what he has done for you. And that's what it means to be saved. Let's pray.
Father, thank you um, for your grace. Thank you for saving us when there wasn't a way. Thank you for making a way out of death into life. Thank you for making a way for us through the chaos of our lives and setting us on solid ground in Jesus. Lord, and thank you for calling us into celebration. I don't know what that looks like for everybody in here. It doesn't look like being happy and go lucky all the time. But it looks like knowing that you have done it. Uh, Lord, you're good. Um, Would you teach your goodness to our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.